0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Taming the Shrew and uh, another flights for us. Uh, we're talking about neuro emergencies this time, and again, we're joined by uh, Dr. Bill Hinckley and uh,
1: Dr. Andrew Latimer. Go ahead and introduce yourself, guys. Hey, it's Andrew Latimer. I'm the uh, resident assistant medical director for Aircare this year, um, an outgoing uh, PGY4, and uh, excited to talk with you guys today.
2: Hey, guys, it's Hinckley,
1: medical director
2: of Aircare, flight doc, ER doc and Taming the Shrew assistant editor.
1: Well, this
0: uh, very complicated and intriguing case was written by Dr. Andrew Latimer. Let's just kind of recap it because there is a lot of parts to it. So you're basically toned out to a small community emergency department and are transporting a patient for presumably seizure back to your local academic medical center for further evaluation. You encounter the referring emergency physician and uh, he gives you the report that basically the patient has been seizing for an unknown period of time. Uh, he's given five milligrams of IM-Versed, 10 milligrams of Ativan total, 10 milligrams of lorazepam total IV, and one gram of IV Uh And then the sort of grand mal type seizure activity that the patient was having had stopped. The patient uh, is a 54 year old, apparently with a long history of some alcoholism and maybe epilepsy in the history, Um, and has been non compliant with his medications in the past. And he was brought to their emergency department by squad after being found down in his driveway by his wife. You know, he was seen about an hour ago, uh, according to EMS report. Um, and the outside hospital staff has started a couple IVs and has hung a bag of uh, of lactated ringers. Uh, had a CT of the head done already, which uh, was negative, no evidence of bleed. And uh, they basically arranged the transportation. Now, the patient on your arrival has a pulse of 118, blood pressure of 102 over 62, is a little bit hypopnic with a respiratory rate of 8, and SATs are 89%, on so a non-rebreather. Uh, glucose is good at 190 and temperature slightly elevated at 100.1. He's diaphoretic, doesn't have any spontaneous movements, and notably on his exam has a fixed gaze deviation to the right. No spontaneous movements to voice or painful stimuli and some right upper extremity that seems a little bit rigid uh, when you're kind of comparing to the left and maybe extended as well. No real vocalizations are listed. Um, so that's our case. That's what we're, we have to uh, to deal with. So, gentlemen, uh, what's your sort of initial thoughts on on this patient? Uh, A, what do you think is going on, what could be going on, and what's going through your mind?
1: Well, it's a broad differential for this patient. Uh, Obviously, the uh, attending at this outside facility was concerned for uh, seizures versus status that he describes to you has stopped. Uh, The exam, obviously, is concerning with this fixed deviated uh, gaze to the right, uh, concerning for possible subclinical status. Um, there's a number of other things that, uh, you'd want to consider on a list like this, uh, in, in a patient like this, um, you know, this prolonged seizures that may or may not have responded that well to really a, a good amount of benzos, uh, makes you think, could this be tox? Could it be something like a TCA overdose? Um, is this patient just postictal, um, which is a possibility, but kind of that rigid right upper extremity and the gaze deviation don't really fit with that. Um, Something to consider would be a postictal patient maybe with a TODS. Uh, Maybe that's not really so much a a gaze deviation as it is um, and, and rigidity on the right side as it is just weakness on the left side and maybe neglect to the left side. So it could be a TODS stroke always kind of has to be on your list here so there's kind of a kind of a lot going on so really examining the patient well uh, i think is kind of at the top of the top of the list and then assessing his airway obviously And let's talk about the exam a little bit. Examining
0: these patients can be a little tough. All the physical exams that we do, the neurologic exam is probably the one that has the most benefit or often is the most revealing. But it can be really challenging on these patients who are are unresponsive and also very challenging on uh, patients that you're trying to do this in a foreign environment, such as this uh, outside emergency department. So, uh, maybe Bill, uh, talk a little bit about what your sort of focused neurologic exam is when you're kind of picking up a patient like this.
2: So, for uh, somebody who it becomes quickly clear that they're not going to have a conversation with me and follow commands, um, that's somebody where, frankly, if there is family in the room, um, I'm going to Uh, kindly ask them to step out for a minute and I'll probably couch it in the context of we just uh, need some room so that we can uh, uh, move the patient over to our stretcher and and take good care of him but frankly what I'm thinking is I I really need to be able to deliver uh, a, a painful stimulus and I'm not crazy about the family watching me do that. Uh, they don't tend to understand and take that well, but I need to know what what he is going to do to voice and to pain. Um, so I'm going to, uh, as uh, expediently and kindly as possible, escort them out of the room. Um, some people will talk about, even with the family in the room, being able to subtly deliver painful stimulus with things like superorbital pressure or nail bed pressure. And... Uh, I, I just find that it's not as effective for me as a, a really good sternal rub um, in terms of being able to get the maximal response out of the patient.
0: One of the things that I've learned actually about painful stimuli is that there there's like lots of different ways that you can deliver it sternal rub obviously is something that you see on tv and we classically do um but all and the super pressure like you like you mentioned is another one as well also uh pinching of the traps um causes a good bit of pain jaw thrust uh is good nail bed pressure um and then um uh, pinching pinching the skin in the axillary fold is also very painful and I'll, I'll find sometimes Patients will respond to one, but not the other. So, I think you're right having them so you can do that good exam where they're not worried that you're, you know, trying to injure their loved one, but instead just trying to get a determination as to what their true level of consciousness is, are is, and uh, what they can do neurologically.
2: Right, and
0: obviously we're we're trying to
2: categorize the the GCS score, and I think a lot of times um, when folks don't follow commands. Uh, And so we're in those motor score one through five arena. Um, People have difficulty sorting out which of those numbers it should be, one through five. And it really is uh, pretty cut and dried. Um, Is the patient posturing? And if so, is it extensor or flexion? And if not, are they localizing? Uh, And if they are moving, but they're not localizing and they're not posturing, then basically it would be categorized as withdrawal. So it it really should be fairly cut and dried which of those scores you're going to give the patient. Um, And real quick, back to the differential diagnosis for a minute, a couple other things for us to keep in mind. This is a guy who was found down in the driveway. I think we got to keep trauma on the list at this point. And even though we know from the head CT that he doesn't have blood in his head, he could still have C spine injury. So there could, uh, maybe that could play into some of these focal neuro findings in the extremities. Um, and with the with the elevated temperature, I think we also need to consider uh, not only uh, tox in terms of overdose, but potentially withdrawal, uh, DTS, benzo withdrawal, baclofen withdrawal. Um, As well as infectious things, and and certainly uh, in in a case that
0: involves seizure, uh, meningoencephalitis comes to mind as well. And uh, Dr. Latimer, you mentioned in sort of one of the the questions that what have you changed around so instead of his gaze being fixed off to the right, his gaze is fixed downward. What are you going for on that? How's that change your differential?
1: Big thing we were going for here is that, uh, and obviously, AirCare has had a couple of cases similar to this, and uh, the UC emergency department has even recently, um, oftentimes a basilar artery uh, thrombus can present with a similar sort of situation, this kind of vague seizure history, and then a patient that really is doing no responding to external stimuli, um, and they can have this fixed downward gaze, uh, sometimes related to... um, related to uh, the basilar artery thrombus. So something always to think of. Um, part of the point here, obviously this is a super broad differential, um, and that's obviously a bad thing that is definitely on the differential, even without the kind of fixedward, uh, down, fixed downward gaze. Um, but part of the point here is that we need to be mindful of not getting railroaded into a specific um, treatment or management kind of algorithm that this outside hospital said it's a seizure and sometimes it's a seizure and a lot of times it's a seizure, but sometimes it's something else and that we just need to go into this with a little bit of a broad, um, a broad thinking and at least to consider, you know, give, give three seconds of thought to something like a basilar artery thrombus because this gentleman's an hour from last seen normal. If he truly has a fixed downward gaze and presented, you know, his seizures, this is something that's easy to, you know, intubate this patient, treat him as status, get them outside of any window and now you have a patient that's locked in that potentially with with some intra arterial therapy could have a, a substantial and very meaningful recovery. Yeah. I think I think that's good advice for any
2: inter-hospital transfer is trust but verify.
0: Yeah absolutely i uh, and like you said, if this is a basilar artery thrombus, uh, which is a, a good a good differential item to consider on any patient who is profoundly unresponsive to their external environment, um, if this is that, and you do find it, uh, that especially if you find it early, the patient could have a, a significantly better outcome if they are then directed towards intraarterial therapy. Um, all right, so let's just, let's just say for the, for the purposes of the discussion that this patient is in sort of a subclinical status type picture. You know, his rightward gaze deviation and the right upper extremity uh, hypertonicity are signs of continued seizure. What are you going to do for him now?
2: First of all, uh, I'm concerned about his airway. Um, now, we often encounter uh, postictal patients who are transiently deeply comatose and yet we don't intubate them and it's because their anticipated clinical course is such that we, we have reason to believe that within a few minutes time they are going to improve in their mental status and in the meantime we think they can oxygenate and ventilate well enough uh, to make it through that postictal period and therefore we can avoid the risk of intubation. However, in this case, uh, he. This guy does, as presented, look most like uh, non-convulsive status or, or even partially convulsive status, given that, that uh, gaze deviation and that right upper extremity hypertonicity. And therefore, it seems to me that the, the anticipated clinical course is not particularly likely for this mental status to improve. So therefore, I've got a guy with a respiratory rate of eight who's struggling to oxygenate on a non-rebreather, and I don't anticipate that his mental status is going to improve significantly over the course of this transport. And so for me, then, that would push the risk-benefit ratio of innovation toward going ahead and securing that airway uh, so that we can maximally oxygenate and ventilate this guy and protect his airway. Uh, and so if we make that decision that we're going to pursue RSI, uh, then we could got to decide on what drugs we want to use. Uh, Latimer, first of all, do you, do you agree? Would you be heading word innovation? And if so, what drugs would you want?
1: Yeah, I think so. And I, I agree with that. Could this just be that, you know, he got a ton of benzos? Yeah. Um, and that's repressed, uh, depressed his respiratory drive. But I think there's enough diagnostic uncertainty and i'm concerned as well for this subclinical status that's continued that there would be benefit to propofol as an anti-epileptic agent um and so we would want to secure this gentleman's airway to be able to give him propofol infusion um I would probably – because he's been found down. It sounds like last seen normal was within an hour. Um, so I'm less worried about rhabdo and crush-type injuries, but you really don't know. And we've got a little bit of a long flight. Um, so I would probably choose rock in this gentleman just because we don't have kind of all the data. Um the one disadvantage to that is it takes away our neuro exam. But if if we're flying 20 to 30 minutes away and this is a 65-year-old guy, um, my hope is he would not be paralyzed by the time we get him to university, get a CT angio done of this gentleman, which is something I would want to do right away if we have that capability. So I would probably choose rock. That may be a little controversial. Um, and I would, I would probably uh, – I would probably use Etomidate in this guy as well uh, and then put him on a, a propofol drip afterwards. I think propofol wouldn't be a bad choice to give him as an as an induction agent either. You guys have any other thoughts? His,
2: his blood pressure is okay. It's borderline soft. Um, I mean, if he does have increased ICP, we we don't want to tank his blood pressure. So it's a tough call. I might be tempted to go with ketamine and then just use the propofol for post-innovation sedation. I do like the thought of having propofol on board as an anti-epileptic. If if he was starting from a hypertensive blood pressure, then I would induce with propofol.
0: Yeah, I agree. I, I would... Probably lean towards ketamine in this person, um, mostly because I've gone towards ketamine for most all of my intubations, anyhow. Um, and you know, like his blood pressure is on the on the softer side, um, and it's reasonable to, I think, want to support that a little bit. And I would agree. Like I think that this guy probably at this point does need to be intubated. The typical postictal patients you really do want to watch, and it can be nerve-wracking to continue to watch them as they continue to be profoundly altered for a period of time but they do have a progression towards improvement however in this gentleman if you suspect he's continuing to seize then all of your next line agents uh, with the exception of probably the the phosphenitone which he got keppra instead of phosphenitone at the outside hospital um <clears throat> with the exception of that you are going to be giving him medications that are going to profoundly depress the mental status in and of themselves, and and cause him to no longer protect his airway. So, probably intubation is the right thing to do for this guy at this time. It it
2: would be nice if they did already have a basic metabolic back, uh, and we knew that his potassium was okay. It would kind of be nice to be able to go with sucks so that we could maintain a neuro exam throughout. Uh, but Latimer, I agree with you. If you don't have that, and the transport's going to be long enough that the rock will probably wear off anyway. By the time you get to the uh, accepting uh, to UC, then rock would be fine.
0: All right, let's uh, let's move along to, to question two now. We're going to kind of change up the patient a little bit. We still have a call for a neurologic patient, but instead of this rightward gaze, um, the patient has some asymmetric pupils, a 5 millimeter uh, right pupil and a 3 millimeter left pupil, and has a head CT, which instead of being normal, shows a really large intracerebral hemorrhage in the right basal ganglia with about 6 millimeters of right-to-left midline shift. Um, patient also is on Coumadin uh, for chronic AFib, and so let's talk about this patient a little bit. What is your bedside, initial bedside assessment and management, and, and uh, what are your sort of priorities for care and for this patient? Uh,
2: Coumadin for alcoholics, not a good mix, but uh, <laughs> what's done is done. So we'll proceed from there. The, uh, the ICH interhospital transfer, this seems to be my specialty. Um, and uh, so basically we need to reverse that Coumadin to the degree possible. Uh, Thankfully, we've got plasma for that, so we don't need to wait on the referring hospital to try to conjure up some plasma, which is often uh, time-intensive. Again, obviously, we'd want to make sure that that airway was secured. And in that case, with a bunch of blood in the head and midline shift, certainly the anticipated clinical course would favor the intubation because uh, they are not going to get better quickly from a mental status standpoint. Um, In this case... Uh, I would definitely be going with hypertonic saline. We've got uh, pupil asymmetry. We've got uh, increased tone in one extremity, which uh, favors posturing, and we've got midline shift. That guy gets hypertonic saline. Uh, would definitely elevate the head of the bed. And then the the other thing would be, I would guess in that case, he probably would have a hypertensive blood pressure as opposed to one o, 102 over 62 as presented, in which case uh, I'm going to want to maximize that, that blood pressure management probably with nicardipine. Absolutely. Let's say his
1: blood pressure was a little softish, like it is here, 102 or 110. We'll be opening a little bit of a can of worms here, but how would you choose RSI medication for that gentleman? In uh, somebody who's got a blood pressure of 110, blood in their head. Um, 110. Yeah.
2: Huh. So we. So your um, concern is that with ketamine, that perhaps harm could come of the sympathomimetic effect of the ketamine.
1: I think it it gets sticky. This ends up being a nice
0: I mean, I I mean we have a town data available to us. The guy is already uh, pretty profoundly altered. You're probably gonna, not going to need a huge dose of it. This is a guy that I would probably go on a half dose of autom- If he was that marginal on his blood pressure, I think a half dose of is going to be safe. It's going to be effective, um, and you're not going to have any ghosts in the corner uh, that right. you might be worried about. And so, I think that that's perfectly appropriate. Would I fault somebody for using ketamine in that situation? Probably not. Do I think that they need you know a full like two per kilo of ketamine? Lord, no. Um, they, they don't. Need that much uh, for for this particular patient, but um, you always said when you're going to do RSI to an extent, you got to take into account like what the patient is doing ahead of time um, and how much they actually need and what their hemodynamics are like, and uh, that would be a person. This would be a person that if they were sort of lower on their blood pressure. Half dose of time, it would probably be my go to.
2: Yeah, I mean, if if we're talking about a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Um, and I want to do everything in my power to prevent rebleeding. That's probably the one patient that I would actively not innovate with ketamine. Anybody else, I will always have your back if you choose ketamine. But I agree with Chef. This might be the sort of guy where I would, and and this is rare anymore, but that I would go with etomidate.
1: Yeah, agree. Taking a step back a little bit, let's say most of these ICHs are obviously hypertensive. Um, so if we go back to this patient, you were saying nicardipine, obviously that's an ideal agent, that's what we do in the emergency department a lot. What would you do if we didn't have that available? I know that we carry that on air care, um, but a lot of a lot of flight organizations don't have that. Is there, any, is there anything else that you would suggest? Uh,
2: get some nicardipine on your <laughs> helicopter. I would suggest that. Uh, there uh, or if you can afford it, may maybe even better, more titratable. But I'm guessing if you don't have nicardipine, you also don't have clavitipine. In which case, then probably labetalol is the way to go. And labetalol uh, can work effectively, um, but it it tends to cause less of a smooth, constant, consistent blood pressure lowering, and, and is more likely to have uh, wide variation waxing and waning, which, which is why it wouldn't be my first choice. Now, that being said, uh, if it's going to take a few minutes to get the nicardipine ready to go, giving one dose of labetalol for somebody who is markedly hypertensive, uh, I think would be fine with, with a plan then to transition to nicardipine.
0: Yeah, agreed. Let's just recap a little bit of the things that we can do to help with elevated ICP on the helicopter. So, uh, Bill, what's your rundown list of uh, must-do priorities for the patient with elevated ICP? So
2: we we got to keep in mind the physiology that ultimately we need to maintain cerebral perfusion pressure. Um, and cerebral perfusion pressure is MAP minus ICP. So we, um, not only do we want to keep the ICP down to maintain cerebral perfusion pressure, but we, we want to keep MAP up However, there is sort of a, uh, a point at which keeping the map up has diminishing returns when there is blood in the head, and that could actually lead to worsening bleeding and worsening of the ICP. Um, so where, where is that ideal blood pressure range? Well, it's controversial, uh, but in general, the, the, the one thing that is easy for me to remember is um, if there is blood in the head shooting for a blood pressure 140 is is probably fine. 140 is definitely preferable if it's subarachnoid. And if it's any other type of blood, 140 is safe to shoot for. The, the one caveat to that being if they started from like 250, then I probably would, would tolerate a higher blood pressure, not wanting to lower them too much as a relative percentage of where they were starting. Um, now, in terms of lowering the ICP, the easiest, quickest thing to do is elevate that head of the bed. And that is something we can do even for patients that are on backboard with spine precautions. You just got to put a little muscle into it. You may have to have a second person to help you uh, get enough muscle to elevate that head of the bed. Um, and then we, we have hypertonic saline. Uh, and so the, the absolute indications for given hypertonic saline are coma plus one blown pupil, coma plus two blown pupils, or coma plus clear-cut posturing. Where it gets less clear is when you don't have a blown pupil and you don't have posturing, but you do have other things such as uh, a drop in GCS by 2 or more or midline shift on CT. And the way I view it is if I've got either of those things, I'm also going with a hypertonic because there just doesn't seem to be a downside. Uh, we have had hypertonic saline on air care for years. We have never had a, a complication, uh, and even if it does extravasate when you gave it peripherally, the chance of anything bad happening from that with three percent hypertonic is is very low.
0: Excellent. I think, and the other pieces are you know na- maintaining normoxia, maintaining normal carbia as well. You know you don't want to if they're Actively herniating in front of you, then certainly the hyperventilation is is a target, but otherwise maintaining normal carbia is going to be your goal. So when they are intubated, making sure they have the continuous end tidal CO2 as every intubated patient on the face of the earth should have, um, and uh, keeping a close eye on that.
2: Absolutely. And for for both the end tidal and for the uh, pulse ox, you you want them to be normal. Uh, you want them to be Goldilocks, essentially, both too high and too low were bad. So um, we the more and more that we study it, the more we find that hyperoxia uh, may be just as harmful as hypoxia. So you're not shooting for a pulse ox of 100%. You're totally happy at 93, 94 okay.
0: All right, so let's move on to the third case now. Instead of a seizure and instead of an ICH, we have a patient that's had an ischemic stroke. They have a, a dense right MCA sign on a head CT and have an exam that's consistent with a right MCA syndrome. The outside hospital physician has spoken with our stroke team here at UC and has administered a bolus of TPA, and the patient's about to get started on the drip. Um, what do we want to? Let's talk a little bit about the patient who is status post uh, TPA and what are the things that we have to consider when we're flying them? What are the things that we need to keep track of?
1: So one of the big things I wanted to talk about with this particular case was the dosing of TPA and how we will typically arrive kind of as this is being administered or it's being finished. Um, And there's a lot of things that we need to know about this. Um, So first, let's talk a little bit about the dosing. So with TPA, the dosing for TPA is 0.9 milligrams per kilogram with a maximum of 90 milligrams, um, which is what comes in the bottle for TPA. And it is a glass bottle with that fixed fixed amount inside of it. So this can create complications for patients that don't reach that maximum dose. So it's administered with 10% of that full dose over one minute as a bolus, uh, which is almost always done before we arrive in these patients, as, as in this particular case. And then the remaining dose is given over an hour uh, by drip. And so this can get complicated when you've got a little lady who doesn't require the full dose there, um... There's a couple of different ways that this is done depending on the hospital that you arrive at, and this is an important thing to ask about and to be aware of. So some facilities will actually pull out the extra TPA from the bottle and waste it so that everything in the bottle goes in the patient over an hour for the for the drip component of it, whereas some places will actually just set it over a pump, an infusion pump that will just stop when the appropriate dose is given. Obviously, we're not taking these infusion pumps with us. We're switching them over to our portable pumps, um, which use the syringe. Uh, so this can get complex. Finding out how that's been done and what's left in the bottle can be important. And calculating how much we need to pull out of that bottle to put on the, put on the syringe can be important as well. And then again, knowing how much has been given. A lot of times we'll arrive at the receiving facility, and at least in, in our area, uh, the stroke team May be at the facility we're delivering the patient, and we'll ask how much has been given, and we need we need to know that how much is left to be administered. Um, and these are things that are really really important in these patients. Yeah. So it's important not not just
0: ask like what's the drip running at, but how many milligrams of TPA have they received so far? How much do they still have to go? That sort of thing. Yep. If if you
2: deliver the patient at the accepting hospital and are not able to say very specifically X number of milligrams are in the patient and X number of milligrams are left to go, then then you've not done your job.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the things we want to watch out for for the patient that's getting TPA. Um, obviously, a hemorrhagic conversion is a possibility.
1: Um, what, are, obviously, what are the things that you guys are going to look for for that? Well, uh, obviously, any major change in their mental status. If you have somebody with a right MCA syndrome um, and then all of a sudden they become obtunded, blow that pupil, and look like the patient we discussed in the previous question. Haven't quite seen that, um, but uh, it is definitely a possibility, I guess, um, of a big uh, a big hemorrhagic conversion that would present as a big ICH. That patient's not going to do well, but that's something obviously that uh, you look for. Um, it sounds like there are some rare uh, side effects you can see. Um, in terms of hemorrhage, so patients becoming hypotensive. I know there's some hypotension you can just get from the TPA infusion, um, but also something to think about. Uh, less common is a, a pericardial uh, effusion, obviously a, a hemorrhage, which has been documented, and that that can cause a tamponade physiology, which can cause hypotension as well. And then a, a non-hemorrhagic complication could be angioedema. Um, I've not seen any of that before, but some of the first cases in TPA, angioedema was TPA, were described actually at at this hospital. So that's something that does happen, and a number of our our former flight docs have actually seen this and described this.
2: Right on. And back to your question of uh, hemorrhagic conversion uh, in, in terms of intracranial hemorrhage, if the patient's presented as a uh, right MCA syndrome, but had not had any seizure, and then all of a sudden seized, that would, uh, in addition to new onset coma, uh, seizure would be another thing that would make me think pretty heavily about stopping that drip.
0: Excellent, gentlemen. All right, I think that wraps up uh, our three iterations of neurologic cases for that we typically see on air care. Uh, any thoughts or last parting shots as far as uh, the neuro patient that we see on air care? Things that you want to pay attention to, look out for, that sort of thing.
2: Um, one final thing with regard to ischemic stroke. Sometimes uh, it is a scene ischemic stroke. Sometimes it's an inter hospital transfer in which uh, the leading diagnosis is ischemic stroke, but the patient has not yet received TPA, in which case you may be transferring them uh, with a plan to get IV TPA at the accepting hospital or even uh, interventional therapy, uh, intraarterial arterial therapy. So in those cases where uh, the patient has not already received TPA, it can be extraordinarily helpful when possible to bring along a witness in addition to the patient, especially if the patient is not able to uh, provide a detailed history. Uh, I have seen that very often, be the difference between the stroke team physician uh, having the confidence to go ahead and treat with TPA or not. Whether or not they had an actual witness there who was able to describe in detail that this fellow was normal when uh, Wheel of Fortune started. So, um, if if weight and balance will allow it, and such a witness is available. Uh, and the cat's not already out of the bag in terms of TPA, think about bringing that witness along.
0: Yeah, I think that I would reinforce that and say that the single most important uh, historical factor on any of these patients, whether you're a flight doc on air care, uh, a paramedic or, or EMT basic out in the community, a nurse, or anybody else seeing a neurologic patient who is profoundly altered, is when was the last time that they were normal? Uh, it doesn't matter whether you think that they were just hypoglycemic. It doesn't matter what you think is going on with them. When was the last time that they were absolutely normal? Because that is the single piece of information that we use to help base some of our treatment decisions.
2: Yep, We, we need to stop thinking in our heads what was the onset, because what was the onset leads to errors. Instead, we got to start thinking, when was the last time we know they were their normal self?
1: Dr. Latimer, any other parting shots from you? Well, every time we've recorded one of these podcasts, I've immediately gone out and flown that patient. Uh, Severe TBI with herniation and recently uh, STEMI arrest in the aircraft. Uh, So, Hopefully I don't get a locked-in patient presenting as epilepsy or seizures, uh, or I'm going to be really spooked. <laughs> if
2: you do, they will get world-class care, no doubt. No Absolutely. Doubt.
1: All right, gentlemen,
0: thank you for joining yet again uh, for another one of these uh, flights uh, recaps. I really appreciate your input on these cases, and we'll have one final one before the, uh, before the summer induction time for our, our new flight physicians. So uh, see you all later. Thanks, Thanks Jeff.